Hello from Spearfish, South Dakota. It's the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. This is the podcast version of our webcast, so the slides we might reference will be missing, but you can find the whole episode on our YouTube page. This is Blockchain, Introduction, Usage, and Attacks with John Strand and Bo Bullock. Enjoy. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for showing up to today's webcast. This is one that's been percolating quite a bit. I actually wrote a class for some friends of mine, just a two, three-day class with a whole bunch of hands-on exercises associated with blockchain. And it was really built around getting people that don't know anything about blockchain to understand some of the security implications and what exactly can be done with it and getting their hands dirty with it. And I'm also joined by Bo. Bo, please say hi. Hey, everyone. And Jason will be the disembodied voice of questions to be serving as your proxy uh, for this webcast. So with all of that out of the way, let's talk about blockchain. The best way, Bo, help me out, but the best way that you see people describe this is they talk about it as a distributed digital ledger with chronological records as they happen. And of course, publicly, this is all public available and it's signed digitally and everything is tied to the previous record, hence the chain components of it as well. Also with all of these blocks, I think it's important for people to understand why they exist. They really exist for two separate reasons. The main reason why the blocks actually exist is that you can actually track the transactions. If we're using Bitcoin as an example, person A transferred two Bitcoins to person Y, and then person Y bought a pizza with it, right? It can keep those transactions. Now, it doesn't actually have the individuals, basically has their wallets. So there's some level of anonymous transactions associated with this, which of course could be, be deobfuscated. But the second reason why these blocks are important is whenever you're setting up something like a distributed ledger, what the hell is the incentive for people to actually validate these transaction blocks? And we'll talk about, you know, proof of work and how that actually works and how zeros apply into it as well and random hashes and things of that nature. But whenever you're basically mining Bitcoin, quote unquote, mining Bitcoin, you're not really mining anything. Uh, what you're basically doing is taking a transactional block you're going through a series of different hash values that you can put into the transactional block to get a series of zeros at the beginning of it. And once you have done that, then you've proved and validated that transaction block of those different transactions. And then you as the quote unquote miner, you get a reward for your efforts. And that changes from different currency to currency to currency to currency. So that has an incentive to, for people to basically serve the purpose as a bank. Because right now the bank, which is just next door, Wells Fargo, we give them percentages, they get fees, they take that off the top. If we're working with like cryptocurrency, the people that are actually validating the transactions, generating proof of work and all of that, they're getting rewarded. So it's like they're getting money, you know, 12 Bitcoins for every single block that they validate. Now, I've joined on this webcast with a real expert, not somebody who read a bunch of Wikipedia articles like me. Bo, did I describe <laughs> that all right? Yeah, absolutely. I, so I would probably not start off so uh, in the technical nature of, of describing how it actually works. Because I think like just seeing this, I bet a lot of people are like, oh my God, what math is this? <laughs> like I, I typically describe it as, like you said, a distributed ledger, right? And, and what that means is that if I'm going to pay somebody in, in a digital currency, the entire point of having a blockchain is so that we don't have a centralized bank that can control and manipulate those transactions. The distributed nature of it, meaning is, is that like John was mentioning, you have the miners that are all distributed 
computing systems around the world. And so there's no single point of failure and there's no single point of manipulation of the currency. Typically, that's how I would, I would start with describing how that works. But yeah, absolutely, like you hit it on the head. All right, cool. So let's move on. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the Genesis block of these different chains. The Genesis block is the very first block in the chain. And I don't know, Bo, do you call it the zero block or the one block? Because I noticed there was a lot of arguments about this. I mean, we got to start with zero, right? I mean, that's, that's how you count. How is it that people can even argue that it should start with a one? Right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So you can actually see that block being transacted and there's some really cool websites I'll share with you a little bit later that you can watch it kind of like you're watching fish. So intro to Bitcoin. So Satoshi was the person that developed Bitcoin and there's a lot of argument as to who Satoshi actually was and whether or not it was a group of individuals. And I would say for the purpose of this webcast, that that's a long convoluted story that goes from Craig Wright down in Australia to another individual who's in Tokyo and it's a long convoluted disastrous mess, but it doesn't really matter. Blockchain is the first one that really, really took over. And also, Bo, would you agree that, I, I personally think that the biggest driver that got blockchain technology and Bitcoin technology to take off was actually crime, right? Yeah, so the, initially, like in the early days of, of when Bitcoin was first becoming on its own, it, was highly used underground in, in the black market for drug purchases and, and illegal weapons purchases. So the Silk Road, I'm sure you've heard of, right? It was the 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 website that was run by the guy who was who was arrested, Ross Ulbricht, for for running Silk Road. And that site brought in, I, I think, you know, millions and millions of dollars just for like drug purchases. Yeah, and then even taking that forward to ransomware that mm -hmm. exists today, that's also a form of crime that I think drove, helped drive the price of Bitcoin up. Absolutely. Way more than it should have should have driven mm -hmm. it up. I think it was what, at $24,000 per coin and now it's what, 3,000 or less? Yeah, it's dropped significantly over the past year. Yeah, so what we need is a new wave of <laughs> ransomware, I guess, to drive that well, price up. So what's funny, what's funny is, is you look at the trends and, and how malware uh, started pivoting with the price changing, right? So it used to be when, whenever Bitcoin was not at that pivotal level where it was worth, you know, twenty thousand dollars a coin, it was ransomware that was the main thing that was that was plaguing organizations, right? And it still it still is. But towards the end of 2017, when it started escalating to that, that $20,000 price point, you saw all the other cryptocurrencies going alongside it as well. And one of those was Monero. And the reason yep. Monero was, was rising so much was because criminals started pivoting over to cryptocurrency mining malware as opposed to ransomware. So, you know, we start seeing, you know, thousands of, of systems now being exploited around the world. You start seeing phishing attacks using JavaScript-based payloads that are just running a, a you know, coin hive in the browser. So there's a bunch of websites. This is something that I absolutely love, Bo. Like I said, it's fun to watch this as kind of like a fishbowl, right? It'll actually show you the transactions as they're happening. So this is the block number, the block hash. You see the number of zeros. That goes up and down by the number of difficulty, whatever they set that difficulty at. And I don't know, what is the difficulty currently for Bitcoin? Is it 12 zeros at the front? I'd have to go look. Yeah, I haven't been watching. But it does change. It goes up and down. Yes, so that's your it goes up, with, up, and, up and down with the mining power, right? The hashing rate. Yep. Now, how the hell do you get those zeros? Well, in the block itself, you're going to have the total number of transactions. This would be that distributed ledger component of the block in the blockchain itself. So you're going to see the number of transactions. This particular block is 2,742 transactions. 
And then down here is the knots. That's the random string that your miners are going to try to brute force to actually get that nonce to a point where it keys up a whole bunch of zeros at the block hash itself. And that's honestly, I, I think this is really, really cool, especially whenever we're talking about currencies. Because as I mentioned earlier, you're, you're basically rewarding the individual systems or pools of systems for actually validating the transactions that are occurring. So instead of paying a bank, you're actually, you know, 12 Bitcoins are going to the people that are uh, actually doing the transaction verification, which I think is just great. And then also difficulty. I don't know what that number actually associates with, but that somehow tangentially associates with the number of zeros at the beginning of the block hash. So another question that I get from a lot of people is why the hell is Bitcoin so slow? Well, when you're looking at blocks, the actual timing shifts. It can go anywhere from, I've seen blocks get validated in like five minutes or less, but on average, they're about 10 minutes or so. That's because the work effort of actually trying to validate that block does require some processing power to do it. Now, the other reason that's kind of neat about it, uh, why that 10 minutes is kind of important, is that's roughly how long it takes for a block to sync to every other master node. So that workload is constantly being adjusted every two weeks to keep that balance, reduce the uh, speed in which transaction new coins are being minted. So it has this built-in kind of generating system that has its own built-in timing to slow the entire system down. Now, there are other currencies that are a lot faster for their transactions, but Bitcoin is kind of sticking at about 10 minutes. Bo, anything to add on this? No, no, I think, uh, I think you, you nailed it. All right, cool. And then finally, the block reward. If you're looking at the block, it comes back, it says that ant miner, that's basically a group of people that are all mining together. They just got rewarded 12.5 Bitcoin. And then those 12.5 Bitcoin will be distributed across all the miners based on the amount of work, uh, effort and load that they actually put into mining this particular transaction. So that's really just kind of it. And that's a very quick high level overview of how this actually works. And I wanted to get through it fairly quickly. If you want to learn more, once again, you can absolutely go read tons of articles and there's thousands of videos about how blockchain actually functions. But I wanted to get into alternative coins and I wanted to get into attacks because I think that that's really, really important for people to understand exactly how, how this is going to actually exist and continue forward. So you have Ripple is another coin in bow. A while back, you had mentioned that you really liked Ripple, and you think that you're going to see different types of coins being used for different types of activities. Could you kind of explain to people how you think different coins will be utilized for like quick transactions, some of them will be much slower transactions, and so on? Generally, you know, most people see Bitcoin as being like the, the quote unquote, like gold standard of sorts of, of cryptocurrencies. It's, it's the one that, like you mentioned, it's really slow currently. They're working on some, some fixes for that. Like they're trying to implement the Lightning Network, which should uh, facilitate faster transactions with Bitcoin. But there are a lot of other cryptocurrencies that have specific purposes outside of just the cryptocurrency nature, meaning like it's, it's not really meant like the purpose of it's not really meant to be a value. It does still have value because a lot of people place value in it due to the fact that a lot of the cryptocurrencies are required for facilitating whatever means they're trying to accomplish. And so Ripple is actually technically a company and the coin is XRP that's associated with Ripple. And the thing that I kind of liked about Ripple is that 
their goal allegedly is is to uh, basically replace the SWIFT system. So the the bank to bank transfer system that most banks use today whenever they're trying to transact high dollar amounts between banks. And so that was kind of an interesting thing. There are other coins like you know Ethereum that have multiple purposes. Like you can you can create other like coins and and tokens on top of Ethereum that do different purposes. You can code a lot of things into Ethereum. Ethereum is very very versatile. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yep, absolutely. We'll be talking about Ethereum and smart contracts here in a second, as well. Micro money, another financial blockchain. Uh, you've got two billion people that are actually using this. I don't know if that's necessarily completely true, but this gets into why uh, this is kind of a transition for me as to why I think that cryptocurrency and blockchain is not going away. And Bo, you and I have talked about it. A lot of individuals will say, well, Bitcoin completely created. Well, that's the death of blockchain. Goodbye and good riddance. And I think that they're missing the point of how this technology is not going to disappear anytime real soon. If you take a look at a lot of underdeveloped or third world countries, their entire financial system is in complete ruin. And I want you to spend a couple of moments and I want you to think about if you were going to have a financial system in a country, just how much infrastructure is required for that financial system to actually function properly, right? You're going to have to have a government. You're going to have to have a series of laws and financial transaction laws. You're going to need people that can actually enforce those laws. You're going to need the infrastructure of distributing like real money to different places. You're going to have to develop an infrastructure of a banking system. And in order to develop the infrastructure to develop a banking system, you're going to have to have banks want to actually do business in your country. And if your country is unstable, be it politically unstable or due to wars, you don't get a lot of banks that are saying, yeah, let's, let's start banking in that country that's really in trouble. And this is a place where cryptocurrencies can actually step in and they are stepping in, right? And that's a huge deal for everybody. You know, we can joke about Bitcoin being a fan, but for a large number of people, we're talking millions of people uh, all over the world in a variety of different countries, this is actually their main currency that they're actually using simply because the infrastructure, the government bodies do not have the support and the underlying like structure that's required to actually have a functioning currency within the country itself. We also have BitPesa is another one. Now, Bo, I've been seeing a lot of cryptocurrencies where their sole purpose is like social justice issues that are wrapped into those. Now, in your opinion, with what you've seen in these, do you actually see them being used for like small loans to underprivileged people in third world countries? Or is that just kind of a veneer and really underneath it is just more crime? I'm going to be honest, I haven't seen too many, uh, like, so you're asking like donations to, to like charity groups kind of thing? Mm -hmm. you're... Yep. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, like, I haven't seen a whole lot of that. And honestly, I haven't seen a whole lot of just people using it for crime, so to speak, anymore either. There have been uh, a number, obviously, of cases where people have been busted for, you know, multiple activities that they've, they've done using cryptocurrency, right? Like, like for, you know, paying for malicious stuff, right? Or, or pay, paying for illegal stuff. But I, I haven't really seen any articles recently about donating. So sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Here's another one. Uh, 10X is another one. And it, once again, if you go and you look at all of these, it's interesting because they actually list out the different countries that they're actually being used in. And like Coins PH out of the Philippines, you know, you got 5 million people that are using that in that app every single day for their transactions all the way down to a cup of coffee. 
So I think it's easy for us, especially in the Western part of the world, to look down on these cryptocurrencies. But whenever you take a step back and you start seeing all of these different transactions, these different types of currencies, these different apps that are utilizing these currencies, you're really starting to see the, the burgeoning of an entirely new economy based on an entirely different type of currency that isn't based directly on any type of gold standard. And what that means for us as security professionals is this isn't going away. Even if Bitcoin is cratering, right? You're going to continue to see this technology that is actively being utilized by millions of people. And anytime there are millions of people that are going to be utilizing a currency, there's going to be value associated with it. That means that there's going to be transactions. And as part, there's going to be transactions. There's going to be servers to protect. Different APIs are going to have to be protected. So it doesn't matter how the hell you feel about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. It really only matters that you as a security professional actively start learning what these different currencies are and how they start to work and how the technologies themselves actually function. Because I'm like it or not, you're going to be securing these technologies over the next five to 10 years. Oh. For sure. Yeah. Let, let me comment on one thing real quick. So to add to John's point, we have seen like with Bitcoin, like most people see it as like, yep, it's just a currency. Like that's, that's all it's for. How would that affect my business? But the fact of the matter is, is there's like, I'm sure John will dive into the smart contract world where Ethereum lives. And mm -hmm. with, with smart contracts, that now facilitates a number of other possibilities, including um, decentralized applications within organizations themselves. So um, you can have a private blockchain on your company's network that facilitates multiple transactions for for some purpose, right? Like sim similar to like the way you would have like a web app posted internally, you now have a decentralized application that you can interact with. And like, I've, I've actually had customers of ours at Black Hills already ask, like, so I have, I have, you know, people in management already asking, how do I put this on the blockchain? You know, and it's like, they, they don't know because they don't, they don't have any historical record of how to go about doing that kind of thing yet. But the fact of the matter is, is it's coming, right? Like people, people see, you know, like Bitcoin jumping up or, or whatever price and they see somebody talking about it on CNBC and then they're like, okay, well, how do I, how do I utilize this? How do I make, make, um, or take advantage of that inside my organization? So sure. You get a lot of people doing, um, like buzzword type activities, like trying to put like, you know, threat hunting on the blockchain <laughs> or whatever. But in reality, there's there's a lot of real applications. So for for example, like one of the applications that I've seen actually put into place quite a bit already is supply chain. So the idea of taking like a farmer in you know uh, South America that grows corn or whatever, and now me as the as the consumer can track exactly the corn that I got like to my plate, you know, all the way you know from the from the, the carriers all the way back to the the farmer. And that's something that's actually being pushed out right now, like within organizations, you know, so like that, that comes with that comes security concerns is, is I think kind of the point that we're trying to say here. <laughs> so Paul had a good question. He said, why in the hell would you use a blockchain instead of a traditional application? And I think that that's a very valid point. Whenever you're looking at uh, like executives, whenever they're starting to freak out and like, we need some blockchain in this. I, I think that they, they don't understand that there's traditional database applications that work just fine for doing basic transactions within an organization. However, there are situations where you would want the previous transactions to be completely cast in stone and that something would be immutable. And, you know, I'll, I'll use the goofy example that everyone talks about all the time where they say, 
you know, oh, well, they got blockchain that are tracking organic bananas. Bananas. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I would, I would actually say that that's, I don't know about you, Bo, but I think that that's a great example, right? You know, you're getting to the point where people are very upset about their food or let's just use clothing because there's a couple of coins that have real strong social justice threads being shot through them. If you're purchasing something that's organic and you want to be able to track where that, that banana has been all the way through in such a way that somebody couldn't tamper with it, well, then blockchain makes a tremendous amount of sense. If you want to buy shoes and make sure it's coming from a place that actually supports fair trade and the money is actually going directly to someone that actually made the shoes instead of some sweatshop in Malaysia, you can actually track that all the way through. So anytime you can think of any type of transaction or shipping or inventory management system that you would want it to be set in stone, blockchain is an amazing utility for doing that. But I do believe, Bo, and I want to get your opinion on this too, that it is overused. And what I mean by that is a lot of executives are trying to switch to a blockchain footing and they don't even know what the hell it does or why it's better for some applications and worse for other applications. Right. They're like, yeah, we want to do our inventory management system on a blockchain. Why? No, we yeah, want to so do the, the best on advice. The yeah, best go ahead. advice to give people about that is if you can solve the problem you're trying to to figure out with a database, you don't need a blockchain. Yeah, please use a database. Yeah. Right? So we already mentioned, Bo, a little bit about a whole bunch of different types of coins that exist. And a lot of them, they pop up and then they disappear. Some are outright scams. Some even say that they're scams, like Ponzi coin. I think it's one of my favorites. <laughs> it's completely getting out of control. But I think the main point of this is they're reusing a tremendous amount of the exact same code base. So what you see with a lot of these coins is they'll fork a project. They'll take the entire source code for that project name it something else, and then release their own coin. And I, and I see that more often than not. Do you see a lot of these coins, Bo, as having completely different applications, or are a lot of them just basically clones of each other for a specific purpose, like gun coin was a, was a coin for lovers of the First Amendment and uh, people that wanted to purchase coins in, <laughs> in a non-attrib yeah. manner? Okay, yeah. but it was basically a complete split. I think it was basically Ethereum or Litecoin that they basically copied, pasted, changed the name and ran with. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there, there's definitely a lot of uh, copy coins. And actually, so you you have you have coins that just copy the code, right? And then create their current blockchain off of it. Usually they modify some piece of it. Like they try to make it faster or create bigger block sizes, that kind of thing. But then you also have to worry about the forks themselves. So a lot of times whenever developers have different points of view about where a currency should go. So that's the thing to understand too, is like Bitcoin is actually developed by a, a number of developers. Whenever two groups within a cryptocurrency decide that they want to go down different paths, they fork it and they create a completely separate blockchain that utilizes, that actually still has the historical record. So it it's actually gets really confusing because so like, let's say you have, you have five Bitcoin and then they now forked Bitcoin cash. And well, now you have five Bitcoin cash as well because it still has the historical blockchain under it, but it's now forked off going in a different direction. I almost look at it as blackjack and, and I don't gamble very much at all, but whenever you get the, the get two of the same card, like if you get two aces, you can fork both of those and then you can continue playing blackjack, but with two separate hands. So it's almost in best case scenario, whenever there's a fork, then basically you just doubled your money. Now, of course, the percentages change quite a bit. Sure, yeah. um, the value of that, of that coin is going to go down but it is a lot like, you know, you're splitting in blackjack and now you have two separate values 
the forked new one, like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin itself. The thing with hey. forks to, to watch, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. So a uh, question from Charles. So this could be used in behavioral analytics to track compromised credentials by logging the usage of those credentials across the network and analyzing this use? You could do that, but I would argue, and Bo, I'd love to get your take on this, that would be something that you could be doing already in your existing sim. Yeah. You don't need blockchain for that at all. Again, the point of a blockchain is you want to you want something that you can trust that has never been modified, right? So if if for some reason that you are you know fearing that somebody would modify the the historical password results, then yes, mm -hmm. that makes sense. But if you're not concerned that like an admin, I mean, I guess if if you really want to make sure that your admins aren't the ones that are changing those values, right? Then that would make sense for blockchain. But otherwise, yep. I would say database. Yep, absolutely. And also, Brooks brought up a good question. Question was, it seems like blockchain as a supply chain context is kind of a proxy proxy for anti-capitalist politics. And I disagree with that. Because remember, whenever you're using blockchain and as it relates to cryptocurrency, capitalism is at its heart. It's just a completely different mechanism that's decentralized. It's almost like your anti-decentralized uh, anti decentralized financial institutions, not so much anti-capitalism. Because capitalism is very alive and well in most cryptocurrencies, it doesn't have that centralized bank. So hopefully that answers your question, Brooks. All right, so Ethereum is another one that I think is really, really, really interesting. And really, correct me if I'm wrong, Bo, but Ethereum was the first one to come up with smart contracts, wasn't it? Yes, that's yep. correct. And the idea of smart well, contracts- technically, technically, Bitcoin has smart contracts too, but it's, it's yep. different. <laughs> And the developer of Ethereum, I forgot his name, it, it slipped my head. He was actually a, a Bitcoin developer first, brought forth a lot of the ideas of smart contracts that was shot down, and then he basically created Ethereum instead. Mm -hmm. Is that a safe way yeah, to actually? Yep. So this is where the security of this comes into play. Well, it comes into play in a lot of different ways. And we'll talk about that more here in just a couple of seconds. But smart contracts, i got a bunch of people saying, uh, Smart contracts rock. Uh, I have a different opinion on that. And we'll, we'll talk about why I have a different opinion on that. Monero is another coin that Bo had mentioned earlier. And Bo, Monero is really used heavily because it can actually do mining in the browser. What is fundamentally different about Monero that it can actually be mined in a browser versus something like Ethereum or Bitcoin? Couldn't they be mined in the browser as well? So that's a great question, and it brings up a very deep topic of mining in general. To give you a very quick overview, so for example, Bitcoin uses SHA-256 algorithm to, to perform mining, or that's the hash algorithm that you use to mine Bitcoin. And since the, since the early days in, in Bitcoin, I mean, the day one, on day one of Bitcoin, you could mine with a CPU, a GPU, and then it started, you know, people started writing FPGA mining algorithms for it as well to faster, to be faster and mine more quickly. And then eventually we arrived with ASIC processors for Bitcoin, which are application specific, meaning they literally can only do that one function. They literally can just process that one algorithm. So ASIC miners for Bitcoin can only process SHA-256 algorithm. The thing that a lot of cryptocurrencies have started doing, including Monero, is basically doing soft forks and changing the mining algorithm so that ASIC processors can't catch up with it. And the reason they want to do that is because a lot of people are of the opinion that if if I can just build out ASIC processors on my own, like let's say I have a you know millions and millions of dollars to custom write ASICs, I now potentially have the ability to make the network less secure because I control more of the hash power. So you know I'm sure most of you have heard about like the 51% attack. 
And so the idea with Monero is that, well, one, one, it's a privacy coin, which is another topic, but two is that they are trying to limit it to the ability of, of only mining with like smaller processors, like GPUs and CPUs. And that's why, why you see malware utilizing Monero heavily as the, the coin that it tries to mine, because it, it's, you still can get a little bit of value out of mining Monero with a CPU. All right. DApps, decentralized applications. This is a train wreck. It seems like a lot of the example dApps are video games. Like they have collectible card games, kind of like Magic the Gathering. CryptoKitties is another one. But there are actual situations where it can make sense. Like if we're thinking of payroll and doing ad- automatic payouts, and people were talking about using blockchain for things like paying out bug bounty programs. And there are sit- certain situations where I think it makes a lot of sense where you want to take people out of the transaction loop and you want something to trigger under a predefined conditions, like, you know, say somebody finds a vulnerability, they upload the vulnerability, the vulnerability is confirmed by the customer, and then the customer basically releases the funds through the smart contract for that to actually happen. That would make a lot of sense. If you want to do accounting and payroll for large-scale transactions, but you needed to have two-factor or two-people, two-person authentication, you could make it so both people could basically authorize a transaction remotely and they could basically use like a digital signature to actually do that. So there are a lot of practical purposes, but the idea of smart contracts basically is now allowing for full code processing. In fact, when you're looking at the coding language, it looks, I, I want to say it almost looks like JavaScript, but I don't know what you think if you're looking at solidity code. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I mean, it's close, close-ish to JavaScript, yeah. Yeah. So now let's talk about those smart contracts and let's actually start being very, 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 very afraid. So the whole kind of concept that I was able to piece together with smart contracts was they basically wanted to have the ability to have a contract where no human beings were involved. And if you watch videos or you watch presentations and they're talking about these smart contracts, they keep talking about that. You know, humans are the problem. They make mistakes. And if we can basically have the blockchain itself enforce this code and execute this code, then if I owed Bo money and certain conditions were met, it would make no difference if I actually did anything. Then the smart contract itself would be triggered and then it would actually transfer the money to Bo. And I... I have to say, honestly, that most of the videos I see of people that get excited about smart contracts, they generally seem like people that don't really like relate very well with other human beings very well. And I know that that's a generalized statement, but you can see here this palpable like fear uh, or disgust of working with other people. And they would much rather have contracts that are binding in the cloud. And it's the code that basically runs absolutely everything without having humans itself. And there's some really big problems, right? There's no third parties. It's irreversible. And of course, if you're looking at something like TLS and SSL and how those certificates are actually validated for secure communications to websites, it actually starts to look a lot like smart contracts because you have kind of these arbiters that set up what is going to happen. Those would be your certificate authorities. You can invalidate certain smart contracts if that code is actually in place. That would be like your revocation of authorities. So there's a lot of things that are cool about it because now we can code and we can have that logic in place, but it's also really terrifying when you're looking at it. 
So Solidity is a bytecode interpreted language. So that means it's like a, a Ruby or a Python, and it doesn't need to be like wicked fast like C or anything like that. And it can run anywhere. And Turing Complete is just basically saying that this is a coding language that can be used to solve any of the mathematical functions that we utilize in our computers today. Alan Turing came up with the idea of using a computer system, basically a hardware computer back then, to solve mathematical problems. And that wasn't a mean feat in and of itself, but he basically identified that a handful of mathematical functions could be used to solve any mathematical problem that you encountered. So whenever you have a coding language that is set up in such a way that it can solve any mathematical problem, they consider it to be Turing complete at that situation. Also easy to learn and mistakes can absolutely have, <laughs> can have massive consequences. We're gonna talk about the DAO attack here in just a little bit, but I think that that's gonna be a great example of how sometimes not having people in the middle of the process, sometimes having things completely automated means that it's going to bite you in the ass directly. So the main attacks that we're going to be talking about, we have like, you know, 51% attack, a tyranny of the majority, double spend, spend more money more than once. And that's, Bo, do you even see double spend attacks ever just showing up? Because it seemed to me like it was more of an academic level attack. Um, I yeah, so... Twice, but the timing functions within most of the blockchains seem to shut most of that down. So actually, at the beginning of this year, Ethereum Classic. So Ethereum, um, Ethereum was uh, one of the coins that forked, right? And so Ethereum Classic is technically like the old Ethereum. Like so, now it, when you talk about Ethereum, you're actually talking about the forked version of Ethereum. When and Ethereum Classic was the original, and everyone moved from Ethereum Classic to Ethereum. So it did have kind of a lower hash rate. And we did actually see a massive attack against Ethereum Classic right at the beginning of this year. I'm trying to find the number of how much was stolen, but it was it was a lot. <laughs> yep, and there was also the 51% attack that was last week or the week before, if I remember correctly. And we'll talk about that briefly as well. Um, so let's go into some of these different attacks here quickly. So the 51% attack that actually hit Ethereum Classic. And I am surprised that this actually came about just because the ability to take over 51% of all the transactional power within an entire network is, is an impressive feat. And I, I would have thought that Ethereum Classic, Ethereum Bitcoin, they would be the least likely to be hit by this type of attack. Wouldn't you agree, Bo? You would think, yeah, yeah, because they are they are the most popular coins out there. So there is there are a lot of groups that maintain higher hash rates. Like so, for example, pools, right? You see a lot of pools that maintain higher hash rates. Like if you go look at the Bitcoin hashing network, like if you look at the percentages mining Bitcoin, you'll see some that have like twenty or thirty percent on their own already. So I mean, it's it's not that far off, but you know, yeah, definitely. A lot of those that are mining like twenty twenty five percent. A lot of those are actually further broken down to a bunch of individuals that are contributing to that specific pool though, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. But the, the concern is that what if the pool themselves decided to, to do something malicious with that power? Yeah, so that's interesting because that basically starts shutting down or greatly degrading the overall ability for any transactions to actually go through if you have, have control of the majority of the entire network. Let's talk about some more practical examples, right? I, large scale attacks are, are, they're very noisy. They definitely get the news, but I would say if you're looking at implementing blockchain moving forward over the next 10, 15 years, that should be a concern. But 
it's not what's really going to bite you in the ass, right? You're going to be looking at more practical attacks on standardized fundamentals of attacking methodology than some brand new types of class of attacks that you'll be dealing with. Well, so, and another thing I was going to say here, go back real quick to the the idea of, of the other attacks. So when you say practical attacks, one of the things that, you know, we say in security all the time is don't roll your own crypto, right? <laughs> well, that's what a lot of these are. I mean, like what, I mean, cryptocurrencies are essentially cryptography at, it, at its barest form. And a lot of times it's, it's custom stuff. And actually, I just saw an article today that Zcash actually fixed a really bad bug that would have, would have allowed anyone to generate as much Zcash as they wanted purely because of a, a, a cryptography issue within the code. All right. So here's some practical attacks. And I was telling you all that I did a class on this, but it's hard for me to get through a presentation and not talk about CredSniper or LSniper or any of these different tools. So whenever you're thinking of attacks, you, you have people that are like, well, they're going to find a zero day. They're going to break into my firewall and then another zero day to pivot into my internal network or take over my switch. Yeah, that's always possible. But ultimately, human beings are using these technologies, and ultimately, human beings are going to do what human beings do, i.e. surf the web. They're going to access their, their email. They're going to access their files through the web. And you're going to find all kinds of interesting things, like you're probably going to find their wallets for cryptocurrency online. Or if you can take over their email, you can at, log into their cryptocurrency exchange, and you can start doing transactions on that exchange as that person so the actual attack surface, if you're trying to steal someone's coins or trying to gain access to the different nodes that are doing the processing, the actual attacks themselves, they look really like standard style attacks, you know, basic spear phishing attacks or bypassing Google two-factor authentication. And ultimately this boils down to a simple, simple, simple point. If you're looking at your attack methodology, if you're developing any type of cryptocurrency or any type of blockchain technology, Stop thinking of leap zero days. There are really, really smart mathy people that are thinking through those problems. And those problems exist, but as a general security practitioner, those aren't going to be the problems that we're going to have to deal with on a daily basis in our organization. And to put a fine point on it, it's not like you're going to wake up one morning and you're going to be working on something with blockchain. You're going to be like, holy crap, all of that studying I did for the CISSP and the crypto <laughs> section is now paying off. <laughs> because I can use a zero day or I can find out that someone's password is for, furries forever and I can access all of their coins and all their transactions. All right. So hacking smart contracts and Bo, I've got to be honest. Um, I think you and Mike are a lot more excited about smart contracts than I am. I am mm -hmm. absolutely horrified by smart contracts. I, I seriously deep down think that this is going to be Terminator uh, basically wiping out large percentage of the population. Well, so the thing is, so the thing is, it's still new, right? It's it's very new, and and it's immutable. So, like, if somebody wants to put together a company that utilizes a smart contract, that code gets placed on the blockchain, and you can't change it. So, if somebody finds a flaw in it, you can't go modify it yourself. Like, you'd have to re-implement another smart contract. But that being said, there are a number of groups. Like, so Trailabits is one that's like leading edge that is pushing out tools to analyze for vulnerabilities. Like, they have fuzzing tools. They have a number of best practices for, for implementing secure code with Solidity. So there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of kind of building right, happening right now in the smart contract space that's really good. But at the same time, it is still very new in, in the grand scheme of things. Yep. So let's jump into a number of different tags. Mount Gox, I would still say today is one of the, like, what would you say, top five different oh, yeah. tags. For sure. 
The GAO attack is my second favorite. I, I think the question, my favorite attack is the parody hack. And I'll talk about that one in a little bit more detail. But the vast majority of the attacks that you see up here are traditional style attacks. Spear phishing, gain access to a system, pivot, gain access to a bunch of wallets, steal money. So it's um, not, I was. I want to mention something real quick, John. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> um, so it's not an, an attack, but it's something that I think is is actually a, an incredible concern with with working with, with an exchange is something that we just saw happen this week. We actually saw that an exchange in Canada, the owner of the exchange died suddenly. And the owner of the exchange had the only password to that, that exchange's cold storage wallet, which actually held like $190 million. I heard it was um, up to 500 now. Is it up to 500? Yeah, I heard it was up to 500, 500 million. And that's not, like you said, that's not a hack. No, it's not a hack. It's, but it's, it's, it's something to consider when you're dealing with cryptocurrencies for sure is, is do you have backups? <laughs> do you have yeah. a backup plan, you know? Well, even if they did have backups, right? If he didn't share that password with anybody, they're screwed. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, well, so like, all right. So I guess I mean we we haven't talked about you know cold storage wallets or wallets in general. Um, no, yet. I took that out because I didn't think we'd have enough time in an hour. Yeah, but I mean, so I mean, to give you a really quick rundown for those listening. So when you have a wallet, you can you can either have it on your own computer in a digital file, so like a, a wallet file. You could have it on an exchange, which is really bad. <laughs> or you can have it on an exchange in cold storage, which, so when they say cold storage, that's essentially not in the quote unquote hackable online wallet, but it's in a, a vault of sorts, right? It's, it's an offline, like on a USB stick somewhere with a password. And essentially that's what, what was, is now, is now locked forever unless somebody manages to, to hack the password for it. Well, and it's funny because whenever I talk to people about wallets and security of wallets, uh, you go to websites, some of their recommendations are insane. You know, it's like you should never have your wallet on a computer because then it can be stolen and you should print it out or you should use a hardware wallet. And it really reduces the ability for people to actually do transactions. And I would caution anybody to follow all of the advice for people whenever they're talking about wallets, especially for your wallet that will be used for small day-to-day -day transactional purposes. I transfer money over, use it in small transactions, and then have a different wallet that would have the majority of your funds, and then that one would be in a cold storage. Yeah, yeah, I, I recommend the hard hardware wallets to people for storing co coins, right? And then, like exactly what you said, just transact small amounts to whatever like quote unquote hot wallet you're going to use. <laughs> yep. All right, so I want to get through a couple of attacks before we wrap this up. The decentralized autonomous organization attack. So this particular, God, what was this ICO? It's the DAO. That's, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, it was, yeah. uh, oh, there it is. I got it right here. Smart Locks. They were basically trying to raise money for Locket, uh, Smart Locks for sharing stuff. And there was basically the equivalent of a time of check, time of use vulnerability, where somebody could basically send in something into the smart contract and get money where, before there was actually a check that money was actually there. And basically 3.6 million ether just disappeared. They were completely gone. And that was one small mistake. And Bo, I've looked at the code and honestly, dude, I, I know now that uh, like Trail of Bits, he actually has 
tools to actually find those types of vulnerabilities. But seriously, I don't think it would catch all of them because it was very much a business logic error. It wasn't like, oops, they didn't format their strings properly. It was basically when one function was called, you can invoke another function where money would be transferred before mm-hmm. there was a check to see if the money was actually there. And it just disappeared. Now, the big concern about this is, and I'll talk about it more on the next slide, is you can't just retroactively roll that crap back very easily. You can actually roll it back, but it's a lot more difficult, I think, than many people actually believe it is. You know, it's a it's an ethical thing, right? So in regards to, to blockchain, you know, most people are of the opinion that it shouldn't change. It should be immutable, right? Like, so... So if something bad happens, that's part of what happened, you know, like that's part of, unfortunately, that's that happened on the blockchain and now it should be there forever. So if you start to go look at forking, you know, like you're actually changing something that, you know, officially is on the blockchain. Or you're just even doing a rollback and then basically ignoring everything before that particular attack occurred. These are not easy things to do. These mm-hmm. are massive. And my favorite thing for this, as I said, this is my second favorite attack was the attacker basically had an open letter to the Ethereum community in that particular DAO. And he basically said he was working within the confines of the contract. He didn't like, he (laughs) didn't hack the contract. He just found where he could take advantage of the contract. And he said that by the Ethereum community getting in and changing things, then it completely invalidates that that whole premise of smart contracts, the whole premise of not having people in the process itself. He kind of sounds like an incel type person where he was smarter and this is his reward for actually finding this vulnerability in people's code. And it's perfectly cool for him to take advantage of it. And it's a really interesting letter if you could actually read it. But I honestly believe, Bo, he does actually make some valid points. If you're looking at his own bug bounty. (laughs) Yeah, he pretty much did, right? If you're putting up smart contracts and you're then going to roll back the smart contracts or try to undo the smart contracts, then you're kind of effectively destroying the trust in the community with that smart contract. Now, I think his whole entire argument is stupid because he's basically like, I hacked it, ha, ha, ha. But you undoing the hack, that's what actually is going to undermine the trust in the community. I think that both of these things undermine the trust. The idea that you could do a time of check, time of use style attack within code, that undermines the trust in the code. But then the ability to roll back and try to get those transactions out or ignore all the coins that were stolen. That was another thing that, that they, they thought about doing. I don't think they did, where they basically were thinking about pushing out source code to Ethereum that basically said, hey, all of these different coins over here that this guy stole, ignore those. Those are no longer valid. And yes, that does actually undermine kind of the open nature of the entire blockchain itself. So this is the, the quote that I wanted to read to everybody. The involvement of the Ethereum Foundation in the DAO's mistake. As I see it, Ethereum is supposed to be a foundational infrastructure upon which a flurry of projects and experience are supposed to blossom. And in order for them to blossom, they need a foundation that is strong. That has the integrity and faces of challenges. The hard fork proposal is a compromise that ruins the integrity and signals that projects like the DAO can influence the underlying foundation of their own advantage. To me, this is totally unacceptable, which of course it would be totally unacceptable because that would basically wipe out 3.8 million Ethereum that he had gained from it. But this particular quote, I think has value. And Bo, what's your, what's your take on it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, like this is, like I mentioned, it's, it's kind of like an ethical dilemma, right? So like the, the Ethereum developers have to decide whether or not, is it really of the best interest to the coin as a whole and, and to the 
I guess, quote unquote, purity of the blockchain um, to just leave it as it is, even though a hack happened, that's, you know, potentially part of what the history of, you know, that coin's going to be. Or do you, do you implement fixes and, and revert the, the blockchain? And, and technically it's like, it's like a fork of sorts um, and then fix it. You know, it's, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where you go with it. <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah. Mount Gox, this one, I looked into it. The more I looked into it, the more it just appeared that it was a standard attack. Somebody broke into the organization, pivoted from one computer system, and they were able to gain access to a whole bunch of different wallets that were in cold storage. And this gets into another question. If you have a wallet and it's in cold storage and it's accessible from a system that is accessible to the internet, is it really in cold storage at that point? And this goes back to trust. I, I told Bo some of the places that I, I'm kind of doing some transactions with various coins, and some of them are just scary, right? The amount of money that they're actually holding, and is there any security oversight? Like, I guarantee you their security is not as good as a medium-sized bank. Oh, and, sure. yeah. and that gets into that whole issue of trust. And I, I think, Bo, I wanted to get your take on this because we talk about decentralizing with cryptocurrency and using blockchain, decentralizing and decoupling from centralized bank, right? But then everyone to get these coins, they end up going to like Paxful and places like that, where it's easy for them to actually purchase these coins from other people and tr do transactions. But sure. it effectively turns them into a freaking bank. So we're back to the whole centralized. We're using like decentralized technology, but then screaming to re-centralize it in these particular exchanges. And I think that is right. something that I would absolutely agree on. That's scary. Yeah. So, you know, with anything financial related, you're going to have people that are going to want to take advantage of that as well. So for or the reason that I think that that obviously exchanges have popped up so much is more on the trading side of things, more on the actual like day trading uh, of cryptocurrencies, right? So you have you have a lot of people that spend all day just just actually, you know, buying high, selling low kind of stuff. And they do it across different cryptocurrencies. It's not just like buying Bitcoin, you know, what's high for USD and selling Bitcoin when it's so, sorry, buying, buying Bitcoin when it's low, selling when it's high. <laughs> It's it's across currencies as well, and so I think that you have I think that's the primary factor and and why you have exchanges so big right now. But the thing is, is like once I get currency off of an exchange, they're not involved in any of that anymore, right? From that point on, like it's now on my own wallet, and they have no way of actually like you know modifying my transactions or knowing where I send it from that point on. Yep. Um, I wanted to get to my favorite attack. This is without question my favorite attack for a number of reasons. It's my favorite attack because it shows that idea of code reuse and library reuse. So if you have a coin or any technology in blockchain that's reusing code sets and libraries again and again and again and again and again, a vulnerability in one of them is actually going to percolate to all of them. So this particular individual, DevOps199, basically was playing around and was playing around with multi-sig wallets and pulled some code and the code was completely available to anyone and then once that was called that code was called and he ran init wallet pulled that code down and then bas basically invoked the kill method to self-destruct it and in doing that he actually killed anyone that was using that particular uh that particular library and that's scary, right? Because that's showing that code reuse and the vulnerability showing up again and again and again in a bunch of different types of libraries or different code bases across different types of blockchain technologies. But I also love this because these are actually quotes from DevOps 199. 
where he saw that things were broken. And you can actually see the entire chat log of what he was talking about. He's like, I think I screwed up my code. It doesn't seem to be working. It seems like it's broken. It basically destroyed everything. And then you see other people that are like, holy crap, it looks like that happened to me. And he basically puts in a quote of, is this a serious issue? And then everybody kind of turns on him or her, could be, could be a girl as well, and starts freaking out. And then he starts posting again and again, am I going to jail? Will I get arrested for this? So this particular <laughs> vulnerability was bad enough that somebody who was just learning the code was able to actually crash out a whole bunch of different wallets. And that's why I love this because it shows the problems of code reuse. And it actually is a really neat sort of business logic error. And sometimes those business logic errors won't just show up in your smart contract, but they may be in additional libraries that your smart contract is actually invoking. So it shows that that attack surface is far beyond than just the code that's being written. It actually goes to the libraries that can be invoked by that code as well. One um, one note on the uh, on the um, uh, the comments by DevOps199. His, he actually has a very very famous set of quotes. He he submitted an issue to to the GitHub repo that that was called "Anyone can kill your contract." And yeah. then like moments later, he he wrote, "I accidentally killed it." <laughs> <laughs> like oops. And I don't know, did he ever get arrested or was there ever anything that came of that? Or is that just I don't like, know what happened there. <laughs> okay, coin check. So once again, most likely a traditional attack, another 500 million gone. And then once again, they start talking about hard forks to try to roll it back. So this, we've already talked about cold wallets, so I'll kind of skip over that in the interest of time. But if you look at the majority of the attacks that, are, that actually occur, the vast majority of them are traditional attacks. Spearfish, gain access to system, pivot, gain access to wallets. Sim attacks. So this is interesting. So this is basically where an attacker can clone your SIM. And I want to go to this particular website. This is information from me. My social security number is partially redacted, which I think is good. But if somebody can get basic information about who you are, right? Social security number, verification information that's easy to find, they can actually social engineer their way into your phone and they can basically port forward your phone to a completely different SIM and bypass two-factor authentication as well. Because a lot of these cryptocurrency exchanges, they're actually now using two-factor authentication and they're using that to uh, basically try to secure as much as they can. But if somebody's cloned your SIM, you're screwed because a lot of those notifications are actually push notifications in the form of text messages. Or uh, even so like, a, like a backup key. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say like, so, so, um, you know, the idea would be like, I, I call up, you know, your, your cell provider and say, Hey, I'm John Strand and I got a new phone. So can you, can you, you know, can you switch over the number to my, my new SIM that I have here? And, uh, if they do that, if you can convince them to do that, then you now control the phone number that's usually tied to an account. So like you would then like go to like, let's say Gmail and do like a password reset and have that phone or have that, uh, that password reset code sent to the phone number that's on file already and get access to the Gmail, which typically the Gmail accounts tied to all the other, you know, cryptocurrency accounts as well. So this has actually been a very big problem. It's, it's happened a lot in the cryptocurrency realm specifically. And something that we see almost like, I would say monthly, see a number of stories of, of victims who have had this happen to them. Yep. So we kind of packed a tremendous amount in a very short webcast, and there will be some more webcasts on this particular topic. And I, I think it comes back to what we're trying to say again and again is that blockchain is not a fad. It is without question, it is here to stay. 
right? And whether or not it's a good idea is irrelevant to everyone that's on this webcast. The only thing that is actually relevant to all of us right now is we're going to end up having to secure this stuff. And we need to start developing better understandings because I've noticed that a lot of people in computer security, whenever they are confronted with the new technology, and I'm just going to use cloud as an example, a tremendous number of security professionals are like, well, the cloud is somebody else's computer and it's stupid and it's dumb and, and I don't want to learn it. And I believe that a lot of that attitude actually comes from the unwillingness to actually learn anything. And if you're unwilling to learn something that you're going to become stagnant in your career, you're going to have to learn this. Whether or not you thought the cloud was dumb, it is part of our life. Whether or not you think blockchain is dumb, it is part of your life moving forward, and we need to be prepared for it. So with that, let's get out of here, everybody. I've got to go back and take care of a cow, and I appreciate all of y'all for hanging out. And yes, there will be more webcasts on this topic in the future. Thanks again, and take care. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, to leave us a positive review on your streaming service. Oh, we got the people rolling in now. So negative uh, 20 up at my house uh, this morning, which is awesome. Negative oh, 20, that's it. Yeah, it's at that special temperature where vehicles just refuse to start. Mm.